Hello over there. Uh, you good people across the pond, this is Tony Campolo. Usually I am accompanied by uh, Shane Claiborne, but uh, as you may have known from earlier broadcasts, he's on a speaking tour uh, across the country. Uh, he's uh, a country being the United States, speaking in 29 cities against gun violence. Uh, everywhere he goes, he's calling people to come and meet him, and he's got a big condon, and they're melting down guns and making them into plowshares, just like the Bible says we should do with our swords. Uh, so he'll be back, uh, but uh, in the meantime, I'm carrying on the show alone, and today I'm uh, interviewing Dr. Uh, Charles Howard. I, I, uh, I'm very anxious to talk to him because he's the university chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania, his alma mater. I taught at Penn for uh, 10 years, between 65 and 75, and uh, I envy him his position because I found that the students at the University of Pennsylvania were very, very interested in spiritual matters. Um, He is uh, uh, featured in publications uh, all over the place. Um, He does a lot of stuff on black theology, on urban ministry, uh, he's on the progressive end of the uh, religious community. Um, he writes for Huffington Post. He's, I, I could go on and on. Enough said. Uh, Chaz, it's good to have you on the program. And uh, let me start off by saying, what are your reflections upon being a chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania, one of our Ivy League schools, one of our most prestigious universities here in the United States? Comment on that. Oh, well, first, man, it's so good to be uh to be with you right now and to be with Brother Shane in spirit. I've been following his book tour, uh, and him and Mike, the work that they're doing, literally beating guns into into garden tools. So I'm, I'm so thankful for his witness and tremendously grateful for your witness, sir. You know, you you, know, you asked me to reflect on, on, on being here at Penn at this Ivy League school. We're special because you were here. You know, you, you blessed our campus as one of our professors, and we're still glowing from, uh, from the, the blessing that you gave us, and you know, before we started recording, uh, I was commenting on how some of your work here, uh, supporting the anti-war campaigns of our students, resulted in a peace sign that has been erected on uh, on our main college green. Uh, that is a reminder of student activism and the power of student activism, but also the the importance of supporting our students as professors, as chaplains, and so forth. And so, you know, I I, I love it here. It's it's a special place, complex. You know, we have these great cosmopolitan universities that bring the diversity of the world, but also bring a whole different perspectives, which is a gift, but also a challenge. Well, thank you. Uh, now, uh, when I was there, I was on the faculty, and I taught the introduction course to sociology, which had as many as 700 students in the introduction course. So connecting with students was easy for me because I had them in class, and uh uh, when I spoke at churches around the area, they always showed up in mass. Usually 30, 40 of them would come uh, just to hear their professor in a church setting. Uh, how do you make contact with students? I mean, they give you an office and hear these people running to and fro, running to class, uh, burdened with a lot of other activities. How do you make contact with them, and what do you do in the way of ministry for them? Well, it's easier to make contact with the students who are part of our faith communities. So we have about 50 different religious groups on campus of every major world religion and 
just about every sect or movement within those religious traditions. And so, you know, our office oversees the different campus ministries. We help fund them, help get them space, and we have our own kind of interfaith groups. I see those students pretty regularly, as well as, uh, sadly, when crisis strikes. If there's sort of a loss in a student's family or kind of a global crisis, our office is asked to help take the lead in responding to it. So, for example, after the tragedy that uh, struck in New Zealand at Christchurch at the two mosques over there, we worked closely with our MSA, our Muslim Student Association. To, so first, we just made sure that they were doing okay. And, and, and they were heartbroken and scared and, 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 and shook up. So we sort of pastorally engaged them. But then they wanted to have a campus vigil. And so we helped kind of pull that together. So I think that's sort of the second way we meet students. Then there's just the average kid who trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives after they graduate or they had a, a hard fight with a parent or a breakup with a girlfriend or they don't like their major or they are trying to see how they can make the biggest impact in the world. And those students tend to wander in. Uh, and finally, we try to do our best to, to go to as many sporting events and performances on campus too, just to support our kids and kind of love on them. And tell me about yourself. Do you run any student group yourself? I mean, I'm sure that you've got an array of chaplains from every major denomination and even from other religions uh, who run groups and have meetings. Uh, do you run any group, per se? Yeah, our office and my colleague and I, Steve, uh, we sort of advise something we call PRISM, which is ultimately our interfaith student group. Uh, and this is the umbrella group for all the religious groups. And it's a type of student government for religious students. But they also put on their own programming that uh, has different scripture-sharing moments or uh, moments where they can kind of visit each other's worship services. But also we try to push them to apply their faith, or, or the words we use, put legs on their faith, uh, to address various things going on in the world. And so we'll journey with PRISM, our interfaith group, and say, uh, what should you all, what should we be saying about gun violence? Or what should we be saying about violence against women? And can we have a summit, a program, a conference, an action around uh, the Me Too movement here in, in America, the sort of harassment and assault of women by people in power? And so that's the kind of stuff we do with the groups that our office directly advises. Well, you know... Here you are, a uh, highly educated African-American leader and uh, basically at a university that uh, uh, is at the cutting edge of observing the American cultural system. What do you see happening to the civil rights movement in this age of Donald Trump? It's mm. a powerful question, Doc. I mean, I, I think two things. I think, you know, our, sadly, our government, different parts of our government are, are working hard to restrain civil rights and to kind of literally dial the clock back, make America great again in their perspective by making it uh, whiter, more male, less diverse. Um, and that is having a negative impact on civil rights. On and and rights. very white. I, I don't think uh, other than Ben Carson, they don't have any... African Americans on the cabinet or in the high offices of the government now, which is quite a contrast from where things were under Barack Obama. Uh, so, uh, how how do uh, the students there on the university uh, react to all of this, or do they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, "I guess we'll just go on about our business because the movement is is on hold for the time being." I think you get you get all the reactions. I mean, I think you know, I think our university, like many 
of our peer schools trends liberal. And so we have students who are part of direct actions themselves. We have students who've gotten arrested because they're dreamers or because they're undocumented, fighting for, undoc- for the rights of undocumented uh, folks here in our country. We've had students who've gotten arrested for die-ins for our Black Lives Matter campaign. We've had students who've gone down to the White House to protest and, and got arrested. At the same time, we also have students who are strong supporters of the president. You know, I think one of the most tension-filled things is our president is an alum of our university. So Donald Trump went to Penn, and his son, his son was my classmate here. And so there are certainly a few, it's a minority, but a few students who support the president and are working on his re-election campaign. And then there's the portion of students who really are ambivalent or, or I don't want to say careless, but are more focused on what they're doing this weekend at a frat party or graduating or getting a job. So you really get it all, I think. But the majority of our students, I think, deeply care and are frustrated and want to do something. There are a couple of things that you said that needed clarification for our British audience particularly when you use the word dreamers. You and I know exactly what that refers to. There are certain people uh, who have come across the uh, border from Mexico or from other uh, countries, but basically from Latin America, into the United States. And uh, these uh, brothers and sisters... uh, uh, were children, were infants at the time, uh, and uh, maybe even uh, born here in the United States, uh, mainland. So uh, they come across the border, and and uh, they don't even know that they had roots in places like Nicaragua or Guatemala or El Salvador, uh, Mexico. And, and suddenly, uh, when they apply for a driver's license, uh, when they apply for some other uh, program like uh, scholarships to go to universities, they discover they're not legally citizens of the United States. And there's been a great pressure to get these young people out of here. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And they're quite upset. I had a student working here at Eastern University where I teach uh, who wasn't aware that she wasn't an American citizen until she applied for a driver's license. She had been brought to the United States by her uncle, left with a with her uh, aunt here in the United States and uh, uh, raised here in the United States. She doesn't know any Indonesian language. She doesn't understand the culture. And suddenly she's confronted with this word from the immigration authorities that it's time for her to return home to Indonesia. Um, I don't know what's happened to her. She's kind of disappeared. Uh, One day she just didn't show up on the campus, and we don't know what happened to her. Uh, whether she was arrested by the immigration authorities and sent back or whether she just decided to disappear into the American society. Um, So that's uh, who uh, he was referring to when he said there are dreamers. Uh, We have these uh, young people who are uh, here in the United States and dream of pursuing careers here in the United States and suddenly find themselves confronted here. So you're dealing with a group of people who are uh, very, very, uh, very, very pressed these days. You're a, yeah. an African-American theologian. Uh, what in the world is black theology? And <laughs> could you explain that to our audience? So uh, I, if I could capture it in, in three sentences, I think my professors would be disappointed in me, but I will try. I think it's, <laughs> it's a branch of a liberation theology would be sort of the first answer. And so if you think of... of State what liberation theology is about, because not all of our audiences are really keen on what that means. And then go on to black theology. 
So I think the first names people would identify with that would be individuals like Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, Leonardo Boff, and ultimately James Cone, uh, Emily Towns, and others like that. And liberation theology is drawing from scripture, drawing from theological reflection and experience, and doing God talk, sort of theology, doing sort of God talk using God words or reflection to bring about freedom and liberation in life today. And so an individual would read the story of Moses and the Exodus and the way that many enslaved Africans in America did uh, 300 years ago and would say, I look, I look at that story and it sounds like it reads like God is on this side of the oppressed. That while uh, things like our American prosperity gospel movement, which seem to say things like God favors the wealthy and, and, and God loves the rich and the powerful, by reading the Exodus narrative, it would say that God is on the side of the enslaved and the poor. And if that's true, then maybe God is on the side of those who are suffering right now today. And so black liberation theology uh, works to bring about a freedom for, uh, for black folk today in America and across the black diaspora. Uh, the definition, though, that I always love to use that was reconstructing the center. And so the illustration I use for my students is if you look at a piece of paper, uh, a lined piece of paper out of a notebook, there are, there's lines there that you write within, and then there's the margins. And no one writes on the side of the paper. No one writes on the margins there. That's irrelevant. It is unfocused on, and, and it's not a part of the main narrative. Those of us who are brown and black or, 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 or oppressed or minorities or poor, we are at the margins of society. And liberation theology, particularly black liberation theology, tries to reconstruct the middle of the paper and bring that which is at the margins to the center, not to displace those and that which is at the center right now, but to create room for them. And so this happens in, in theology, in church worship experience, in the media, in politics, in just day-to-day experience where in ultimately a white supremacist society that puts primacy on white folk, if we can reconstruct the center, not to get white folk out, but to create room which exists for black, brown, uh, people of East and South Asian descent, native populations, if we can create room in the middle for all of them, then we have done God-liberating work. Well, you uh, did that pretty eloquently, and I thank you for that. Uh, you mentioned the uh, writings in the Hebrew Bible, uh, in the Torah, and what Christians call the Old Testament, uh, about Moses and the whole Exodus experience, and showing how that uh, narrative from uh, thousands of years ago uh, speaks very powerfully to the African-American community here in the United States and to Afri- African people uh, who have migrated to uh, places like uh, New Zealand and uh, South Africa and uh, to Australia and, uh, and all over the United Kingdom. Uh, I think equally powerful, and I'm sure you've used this often, is with the birth of Jesus— uh, the Magnificat, uh, where Mary acknowledges that she has been chosen of the Lord to give birth to this man who's going to be the Savior of the world. And she uh, says, uh, he shall bring down the mighty and lift up those who are of low degree. He shall feed the hungry, and the rich he will send away empty. Uh, my goodness, if that isn't revolutionary talk, I don't know what is. If that isn't liberation theology, I don't know what is. And I'm sure you've used that passage. Tell me about your own journey as a Christian. How did you become a Christian? Were you raised in a Christian family? And when did you begin to see yourself in terms of moving into ministry? Mm, you blessed me with the question, man. I, 
You know, I, I think about when I think about the sort of gospel narrative, I'm, I'm always struck by how you know Jesus doesn't come down into Rome or Jerusalem, but he's born in Little Nazareth, and and that always resonated with with me being born in a tiny little town called Baltimore, Maryland, here in one of our smallest states, and Baltimore being one of the, the poorer uh, city, poorer major cities uh, on the East Coast. And we would say, can any good come out of <laughs> out of Baltimore, as as they said in the scripture? Can any good exactly. come out of Nazareth? So that's where you came from. To real man, absolutely. Yeah, I was born in, in Baltimore, and I was an orphan. You know, my both my parents died. Oh, uh, pretty young, and so my older sister uh, legally adopted me and became my guardian. And she was twelve years older than me, so she was a you know, twenty-four year old who took in a twelve year old. Wow, uh, which which was kind of the heroic act of, uh, of of grace in my life, and so I think that when I think about God's love, that's the first thing I reflect on is my sister and my other siblings and my my brother and my other sister and my cousin, who all stepped up and loved me like I was their child, and I think I began to think about sort of the way God radically loves us too, amidst us not perfect, amidst where we're coming from, amidst our, our, our stories. And then the charge for us to love the same way. And so I, I, I tell people, you know, up, I got all kind of great opportunities, got a great scholarship to uh, to a wonderful school, um, preparatory school in Baltimore. And then sort of, you know, at, at, I went to Penn as an undergrad. The school took a risk on me, bringing a guy whose grades were okay kind of in here. Um, and as whatever suffering I've had in life as an orphan, as whatever, I've never known a day where I wasn't loved. And so to me, when I reflect on the, the, the gospel message and what it means to be a Christian in our charge in the world, I think the primary charge is to love radically in the way that I've been loved radically. And so I, 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 don't, I can't remember a day where I wasn't Christian. I've definitely had my questions along the way. I've definitely had real frustration with the church in America, uh, parts of the church in America. But I've always the message of love from Christ and then the message of love for the broader Trinitarian community has been something that's just resonated with me my whole life. And uh, uh, your call to the ministry, when did you just say, gee, I looked over the vocations and this is the one that I liked, uh, <laughs> which is a reasonable position to take. I mean, I'm not sure, but that I didn't take the same position. I looked all, all over all the vocational options that were available, and this this thing in ministry for Jesus Christ seemed the most attractive to me. How did you uh, end up uh, being in Christian ministry, which you are, even though you yeah. uh, have a wider responsibility to all the religious groups on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Incidentally, folks, I'm talking to uh, Dr. Charles Howard, uh, who is the university chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania, and this is Tony Campolo, and the name of the show is From Across the Pond. Um, we are on every week at this time, and we promote red-letter Christianity— if you don't know anything about Red Letter Christians, go to the website, redletterchristians.org, and find out what we're about. We're a group of people who have evangelical beliefs, but we don't want to call ourselves evangelicals anymore because uh, the word evangelical has been connected with right-wing politics and with Donald Trump, and we're saying if that's where you want to be, that's okay with us. It's just that that's not who we are, and we want to be on the progressive end of the evangelical uh, spectrum, and that's where we have positioned ourselves, and we're here every week at this time. When I say we, it's usually me and uh, uh, Shane Claiborne, the author of a very prominent book called uh, 
the ir- irresistible revolution. And uh, we are both based at the University uh, of, uh, not of Pennsylvania, but of Eastern University. And we broadcast from uh, the studios of, uh, of Cabrini University, a Catholic university that sits across the street from uh, Eastern. And our guest today is Chaz Howard. The time is fleeting on, and I just asked him about his own uh, little sketch of where he grew up and what his faith is. And uh, Chaz, reflect on how you view the church in the United States today, uh, where uh, Christianity is and where evangelicalism is. I have mixed feelings about where the, uh, the the church, the body of Christ, is here in the states right now. I think there's so much that is encouraging and so much that is deeply discouraging. And so, you know, I, I again look at what Shane is doing as we speak right now. Him and Mike Martin of Raw Tools are are living the gospel out and and literally beating uh, swords into plowshares or guns into garden tools. To, to me, that's so encouraging, and I and I think young people see that. Um, or the kind of work that uh, folks at the helm of the Episcopal Church or other denominations are doing um, to bring folks together for our environment and other other aspects at the same time. I am so saddened by the way that the right, the, sort of the Christian right, has been weaponized by politicians, particularly this president, and the compromises that they've made, and, and, and the way it just doesn't look like Jesus. And so it's not just because of my political beliefs that I'm frustrated with them, it just doesn't look or smell or, or, or seem like Jesus at all. The, the cruelty for people of color, the cruelty for, for the immigrant. You know, I heard recently that the kind of the charge in the Old Testament is to love the widow, the orphan, the orphan and the poor. And it sure seems like folks on the right aren't doing any of those. And, and if that's the litmus, it, it, it's heartbreaking. And I'm frustrated, but I'm saddened by it. Uh, yet I have hope. I think good is coming. I think we ultimately we win in the end. Hope. What are the signs of hope? I mean, you mentioned Shane and what he's doing, but he sees himself as just a very small part of the uh, evangelical Christian community and um, facing great opposition everywhere he goes, even though young people flock to his side. Uh, what other signs of hope do you see out there? So I have students who've come into my office who are, who, are, who are frustrated because their home church uh, is just on the wrong side of a lot of these issues. And this, this is a true story. I'm not, this, I don't say this to be flattering. I handed this young man one of your books, Tony, oh. and, said, and said, and I have a whole shelf of them here in my office. Read this, because I think you'll see people who love Jesus hard, but see these issues differently. And, and to me, the fact that that young man stayed in the church, not in that church, if he left his home church, but stayed in a broader church because of what you've written, is a sign of hope. I think I'd be discouraged if, if we were sort of hemorrhaging uh, young people who want nothing to do with that. And there, there's some signs of that. And yet there's some signs of, of people who are holding ground, including you, including Shane, including Reverend Barber, in, in, including uh, other, other leaders who are out there risking arrest, who are, who are risking... Uh, dismissal from being on TV or being on the radio. I, I, in a lot of ways, as as painful as the church is right now, church is almost more on fire than it's been in a long time in America and around the world. And I think that that's hope. Well, that's that's a good word. 
and thanks for those encouraging things for stuff that I've written in the past. I I do hope and pray that people go out and uh, get some of your books. Let's see, if you had to promote one of your books, which one would it be? Well, I think going off the, the title of, of this radio show, my last book was called Pond, River, Ocean, Rain, and it, and it uses water metaphors to talk about life with God and life with our neighbors. And so I, I enjoyed writing that book. It's a small book. It's meant to be kind of uh, written or read in small bites. So I hope, hope people enjoy it. Pond, River, Ocean, Rain, all the proceeds from it benefit uh, World Vision's Clean Water Fund. And so I, I don't see any of that money, but, but I think others will feel the effect of it. If you buy a book... I hate to say it, uh, Chaz, but uh, uh, we're going to have to wrap up this interview with Dr. Charles Howard, the university chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, thank him for being on the show. And uh, uh, to say all of you people out there in Radio Land, uh, keep tuning in to Across the Pond. We're here every week at this time, and uh, we're trying to promote Christianity as it's seen from a more progressive position. Uh, blessings on you folks out there, and uh, know that uh, uh, we, we ask you to support Premier Radio. Uh, that gives us this time without charging us. I'm really pleased that this gift has been given uh, to Across the Pond. Blessings on you. Be back next week at this time, uh, and uh, we thank you for listening today to Dr. Charles Howard University Chaplain at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you.